Welcome podcast listeners to the Spheres podcast. I'm your host, Toby Castle. Spheres is a public theology podcast that helps successful people live more philosophically by creating brave spaces of shared meaning. Each episode features an extended interview with a different athlete, scholar, creator, educator, entrepreneur, politician, or activist, and how they think theologically and live well in society. Enjoy. Recently, I spoke with Professor John Stackhouse about epistemology, critical theory, and Christian ethics. We explored the nature of thinking and how, through history, people have shifted their acquisition of knowledge away from communities towards a highly individualized frame of self. In this conversation, Professor Stackhouse critiques public discourse as we explore not only what we think, but also how we think. Born in Canada and raised in England, John Stackhouse was educated in history and religious studies at Queen's University in Ontario, Wheaton College Graduate School in Illinois, and received his PhD from the University of Chicago, formerly a professor of European history at Northwestern in Iowa, a professor of religion at the University of Manitoba, and the Swain Yu Yutong Chi Professor of Theology and Culture at Regent College. He now serves Crandall University in Moncton, New Brunswick, as the Samuel J. Michalaski Professor of Religious Studies and Dean of Faculty Development. Welcome, Professor Stackhouse. Uh, nice to be with you again, Toby. A friend, but also one that I know when I want to grow up, I want to be just like you. <laughs> now, I'm intrigued over the last number of years that we've known each other, you as a theologian as and as an ethicist. I'm intrigued for you in kind of your sphere of influence. What does it mean for you to live philosophically? Well, I don't know that I do, Toby. I think that's okay. a really interesting question. I, mm-hmm. I think that... Uh, on the one hand, I think to live philosophically is a traditional high ideal, uh, globally speaking. It could be something that you could say with plausibility in India, you could say it plausibly in China, you could say it plausibly in ancient Greece. The idea of living intentionally, right? The, the idea of trying to find the best explanation for the world that you can, trying to find the best map for living that you can, and then intentionally living your life in accord with those best principles, rather than being driven by appetite or being driven by the crowd or being driven by the voice of mom or dad in your head. So all of that's good. All of that's part of, I think, being a free and responsible adult. So why wouldn't I think that living philosophically is the best way to describe it? Because as a Christian, I understand my primary orientation not to live in accord with the Christian religion, but to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the really strange claim Mm -hmm. that Christians make, and it's no less strange for being claimed by 2 billion people, the really strange claim is that Jesus of Nazareth, who died 2,000 years ago, I think came back to life. I think he went back to heaven. I think the Holy Spirit of God 
connects me with Jesus, mystically speaking, yeah, yeah. such that I can and should try to live my life, including this conversation, in some kind of partnership with Jesus doing what I understand he wants me to do. Which, when I, of course, put it that way, sounds either like something quite wonderful mm -hmm. or sounds like psychosis. Hardly. If somebody yeah. says they want to live in accordance with Napoleon and they think that they're walking along taking advice from Napoleon, we, we would generally find them a soft room medication and skilled <laughs> professionals to help them. Yeah. So, but behind that, I guess in the West, we would call it a belief system. There is some form of framework. Mm hmm. Of course. Now, yeah. How, how have you found that framework, whether you want to call it living intentionally, uh, maybe in your work, that's more living theologically. How, how for you has that framework been informed to then help you live intentionally? I like your attempt to be sensitive by moving from philosophy to theology. I've enjoyed asking people, smarter than I am, and they're not that hard to find, <laughs> uh, uh, to help me understand the difference between theology and philosophy done from a Christian point of view. Mm -hmm. And I've asked philosophers uh, such as uh, the Americans, uh, Nick Wolterstorff and Al Plantinga and Steve Evans. I've asked theologians like my friend Miroslav Wolf and others. And um, basically, the difference, it seems to me, and I'm not going to blame them for what I'm about to say, but it seems to me the difference is that theology really is about the biblical story of what God is doing to create and then rescue a fallen world and prepare us for the good world to come. So mm -hmm. theology is really about that biblical story of creation, fall, salvation, and the renewal of the world. Mm -hmm. Philosophy for the Christian is what it is for everybody else too. It's thinking hard, thinking reflectively about everything else. Mm -hmm. And the difference for the Christian is simply that this wonderful story that is set out in the Bible is the framework within which we place everything else. And that would be within which we place our philosophy, uh, within which we place our understanding of history and social science, within which we practice natural science or applied science and so on. So that big story that helps me understand where we've come from and where we are now mm -hmm. and where we're going, that's theology, yep. then can be parsed out into ethics and mores and ways of dealing with people at work and ways mm -hmm. of raising kids and ways of getting along with your spouse and so on. So I heard recently uh, in an interview you did uh, I think with, with Innovarsity based in Canada, uh, where you were asked about uh, critical theory, critical race theory, and the history and the context of that. I believe that I read uh, recently in the kind of discourse about this conjecture that to do theology well includes doing critical theory or critical race theory. I would be intrigued to hear from you, A, how you define, describe, and understand critical theory, but be your uh, your perspective in adding it to, I guess, the toolkit of a theologian. My understanding of critical theory is pretty textbooky. Sure. I'm no expert on it, um, but so my understanding of critical theory is this sort of 
mid, slightly earlier than mid 20th century phenomenon uh, arising in Germany of people like uh, Theodor Adorno, Max Horkheimer, uh, Herbert Marcuse, and uh, well, the indefatigable Jürgen Habermas, who's still with us today in his 90s. And essentially, they're thinking about how the world is structured socially and critical theory is, in a sense, an extension of the 19th century desire to unmask what's really going on in the worlds of uh, power, influence, and so on. Marx unmasked things in his own way. Nietzsche unmasks them in his own way. Freud unmasks them in his own way, and so on. And critical theory is, a, is, is an extension of that to submit every kind of social interaction to serious investigation and reflection so as to expose what's really going on so we can change it for the better. And critical theorists are actually, in a sense, enlightenment liberals mm -hmm. who think we can figure out what's going on and then we can fix it. And we can fix it uh, through democratic processes mm -hmm. of suggesting good policies and discussing them freely and then voting on them and trying to improve things uh, better and better. Mm -hmm. So as daunting as they can sometimes seem to North Americans, these strange German men with their strange names and so on, uh, I don't think we have to be daunted very much. It's a particular way of trying to advance the modern project of understanding mm -hmm. the world and trying to make it better. Critical race theory then comes along, I don't know, about 40 years later in the 1970s and 80s, particularly in legal studies first and then spreading to suggest that one of the endemic problems of Western society is the oppression of non-white people by white people, which really is just the Western version of the oppression of less powerful people by powerful people. Mm -hmm. Apply critical race theory to China, you've got a different situation. You've got the Han oppressing mm -hmm. the Uyghur, right? Uh, if you apply critical race theory to the history of Korea, you've got the Japanese or the Chinese continually going into the Korean Peninsula and oppressing them. So critical race theory, uh, I don't think is racist. I don't think it actually says that all white people are intrinsically evil oppressors at heart and all people who are not white are innocent victims. I think it's just a common sense expectation that groups that wield power like to keep it and expand it and groups that don't uh, tend to be victimized by that. So as a Christian who has a fairly robust doctrine of sin, namely one out of every one person's is a sinner, yeah. I expect that. And so I'm not daunted by it. And the, the response recently of America's largest Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, to distance themselves from critical race theory seems to me either just blatantly racist, which I hope it isn't the case, um, but or instead is just the ignorance of a bunch of not very well-informed white men. And I try, Toby, as a principle, never to attribute to evil what can be satisfactorily explained by stupidity. And in this case, I think it's just they just don't know what they're talking about. I hope it's not because they're just racist. And so in those moments where you, where you do see faith leaders marginalizing critical theory and critical race theory, is there any kind of critique or insight you have into that discussion? Is it only their pursuit to maintain a power or is there something else going on? Well, in the case of 
Christianly critiquing critical theory itself and critical race theory itself, my critique would only be, don't think too small. Mm -hmm. uh, only Habermas of the four I've mentioned and only latterly has been open to the critical and creative potential available in religion and particularly in Christianity. Mm -hmm. They generally have seen Christianity as part of the problem, not the solution. Mm -hmm. And I respectfully would suggest that Christians have indeed been a major part of the problem, but that the Christian religion has intellectual and moral resources that can be quite helpful uh, to the emancipation of those who are victimized and to the appropriate restraint of those who hold power. As, as may, our, the Christian Bible is full of stories of, of God leveling the proud and lifting the humble. Mm -hmm. the, the Christian message is one of justice and of everybody flourishing properly rather than just some getting rich on the backs of everybody else. So there's quite a revolutionary edge to the Christian religion, even as it at the same time, I think is quite practically, even pragmatically uh, oriented to the real world in which sometimes social change has to occur incrementally and yes. slowly. Yes. So that it is ultimately revolutionary, but God's taking an awful long time to pull off this revolution. <laughs> and it's, it's as if he wants to bend us, but not break us. And so my own Christian political philosophy is not uh, immediately revolutionary. It is ultimately revolutionary. But frankly, I'm fairly lowercase c conservative in that I think social change that's lasting and that is fair is more successful when it's incremental than when we try to change things all at once. And the historian in me just says, yeah, the attempts at revolutionary change have generally been... Uh, ironic at best and sometimes just plain destructive. Totally. And so moving on then to things like public discourse, um, it seems that communities are becoming more and more polarized in their perceptions of what is the right and the ethical way to do things. Whether they're more conservative or more liberal or more progressive, we seem to be uh, retreating to our uh, public corners. Why do you think this is and what, what do you think is causing our community to become so polarized? Do we fail to hear ourselves or are we lacking something in this pool of public discourse? Why we are the way we are does preoccupy me too. I'm glad you're thinking about it and I'm thinking about it also. Yep. And I've got a complicated answer, which for our purposes, let me try to simplify to a couple of points. You can go as complicated as you want. <laughs> actually, that, that actually could be quite refreshing. Well, Toby, you forget how long-winded I can be. So let me try to be <laughs> easy on your, on your listeners here. Um, but let me say there's two or three things rather than just one. Okay. I think we see a confluence, which is why it's so, so bad right now, is that we see several patterns that reinforce each other. Mm. And they're not the same thing, but they happen to reinforce each other. So the, the amplitude of the cultural waves uh, are, is really high. I think one thing is in terms of the intellectual history of our culture, the transition from traditional society to modern society, among other things, meant the undermining of traditional ways of knowing. 
mm. traditional uh, locky or locuses of, of authority. So we no longer defer to sacred scripture. We no longer defer to sacred personages. We no longer defer to tradition. So modernity, respectfully, as it were, says, thanks, grandma and grandpa, but we'll take it from here. We're going to look mm -hmm. forward and decide things for ourselves. Post-modernity, uh, among many other things, is the despair of the modern project in the light of the cultural disasters of the 20th century, the First World War, the Second World War, the Great Depression, the um, oil crisis of the 70s, the Watergate crisis among Americans, the, the mire of Vietnam. And so Europe and North America and the extension of Greater Britain, you know, Australasia as well, these cultures all undergo at different times, but within about 50, 60 years of each other, pretty heavy seismic shock of, uh, of doubt. We used to trust the people with the high military rank. You used to be able to trust a general. You used to be able to trust a senior politician. You used to be able to trust a famous preacher. You used to be able to trust the head, the, you know, the chief of police. Who do we trust anymore automatically? We, we don't, we don't even trust scientists anymore. I mean, you're Monsanto, I'm Greenpeace. Mm -hmm. See, or you bring your PhDs, I'll bring mine. So post-modernity has, has now settled across the landscape. It used to be a cool thing to talk about 30 years ago, and then kind of almost everybody was talking about 20 years ago, and then 10 years ago, we started to get bored by it. But now yeah. it's a social phenomenon on a wide scale. So what We're, you're essentially saying then is postmodernism from 30 years ago has subsequently created a trust deficit in society. It's part of what's happened. I, I wouldn't say it's created it so much as that's what's happened. Now, why it's happened, I haven't quite said yet, but this is what's happened so far. Because I don't think, in other words, uh, I don't think postmodernism per se, the sort of French deconstructionists, for instance, I don't, I don't think anybody's reading Jacques Derrida any more today than they were 30 years ago, probably fewer, actually. Um, so it's not the, the French theorists and, and their German compatriots. You know, it's not like Heidegger is being sold on every street corner. So, but, but what's happened is this society-wide doubt of a postmodern sort where we just don't trust really anything. Toby, we're in a situation I think is literally unprecedented in world culture. And that is that we get almost all of our information through one medium, the internet. Mm -hmm. And we all know that you can't trust the internet. Yeah. Now think about that. That's never happened before. You could trust the priests. You could trust the scripture. You could mm -hmm. trust the scientists. You could trust the philosophers. You could trust the... Now, everything comes to the internet and everything's dubious. We can't live that way, right? You can't live in a state of constant doubt. And what I think has happened over the last 10 or 15 years is a kind of fallback, a kind of despairing position that says, well, I got, I got to make up my mind somehow I got to make choices about whom to vote for and whether to spank my kids or not, or whether marijuana should be legalized. Like I've got to make my mind up about these things. Mm -hmm. How do I do that? And I think what we've seen is a massive cultural defaulting to intuition, mm -hmm. to what just seems clear to me because mm -hmm. I can't go anywhere else. I can't trust anybody else. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to look at things the best I can 
And what seems luminously clear to me is what I'm going to opt for. Now that nicely coincides with the agenda of corporate capitalism mm -hmm. and of big party politics is to reduce us to individuals who each are trying to make up our little minds by our little selves. Mm. Religious groups are awkward. When people start binding themselves together into religious groups, they start thinking corporately and they might actually resist what Walmart wants to say or what Starbucks wants to mm. say. If people start getting together in ethnic groups, they might not be happy with the latest policy from Google. They might not be really happy with the way Amazon treats people of color. So what we try to do is break them down into individual consumers and keep telling them that you can have it your way, that everything's supposed to be the way you want it. And we'll help you with that so that we don't bind ourselves together in families and neighborhoods and communities and ethnic groups and religious groups. It's not like a, a whole bunch of really smart people just get together, you know, in a room like a Davos or somewhere and says, let's just screw the rest of the world. They don't have to. It is the way these things go. It is a kind of social principle that this is what capitalism does. This is what major politics do. And without anyone pushing back on that without us investing in intermediate organizations to help us think better by clearing a space for us to think where mm. we don't get dominated by Netflix. We don't get dominated by Apple. And that's what churches can do. That's what families can do. That's what good schools can do is give us these breathing spaces to think differently without that. Then it's just my opinion. And it's just your opinion. And since I happen to prefer my opinion to yours, I'm right, you're wrong, go to hell. <laughs> and, and we don't necessarily say go to hell in polite company, but we do, because that's what it means to unfriend somebody. That's what it means to block somebody. That's what it means to, to de-platform somebody is to say, you are dead to me, go to hell. And that's what's happening everywhere. And so essentially what you're tapping into at the moment is this, which isn't a new phenomenon, I would argue it's been around longer than we would give credence to, is this cancel culture. If someone doesn't agree with you, you just cut them out and you carry on. It intrigues me that you've brought up a number of things. You've, you've brought up hyper-consumerism. You've brought up hyper-individualism. You've brought up essentially this independent thinking, not interdependent thinking. How have these three things influenced theology in the last 20 or 30 years then, especially in the West. One of the baleful results of the Protestant Reformation, and I say this as a Protestant myself, I've got yes. lots of Catholic friends, I studied yes. the Catholic faith, I've studied the Orthodox version of Christianity as well, and have a lot of respect for it, but I'm not very tempted by it. Um, I'm I can't imagine myself converting to Catholicism or Orthodoxy for a number of reasons. So I say this as a Protestant. One of the baleful results of Protestantism has been just what our Catholic brothers and sisters have told us was a problem with us all along, namely the atomizing of the church into individuals, each of whom believe that because we are each responsible before God, that's true, we all are equipped to make up our minds about difficult matters which isn't true. 
The New mm. Testament says that God has gifted the church with apostles and prophets and teachers and preachers, people whose vocation and gifting it is to help mm. the rest of us think through difficult and important matters. Well, forget that. When it comes to religion, everybody is his or her own little expert. Yep. I mean, I've, I've been on radio shows where if I had been an astrophysicist, people would call in and respectfully ask me their questions about Betelgeuse or light years or parsecs or whatever. But I'm a religious guy. So everybody just feels free to take me on as if it doesn't matter that I may have 15 more years of graduate study than they have or have written 10 books and they've written zero. doesn't matter because I'm religion we're all expert. So what it means for theology, I'm afraid, is that theology is generally, not everywhere, but generally being done by individuals. It's being done by university professors and seminary professors, mm -hmm. by pastors, by individual parishioners, mm -hmm. and Protestantism doesn't have good ways of gathering expertise together yep. and thinking together about things. We have church denominational boards that do that from time to time, generally not very well. Mm -hmm. We have seminaries and grad schools that generally don't work together. I mean, I've taught at places like that. Yeah, yeah. And even though you've got all these religious experts in one place, they almost never collaborate on anything. And uh, so as I've recently written up here in Canada as well, my concern is that smart people who want good theological answers that they can reasonably depend upon really don't have anywhere they know that they can go. And instead, they're left to pick their own favorite writers. Well, that just makes them pick their own theology. Not very helpful. And so in your work as being an ethicist and a theologian, a lot of the things that people are dealing with individually are actually quite complex. And and there seems to be a growing trend, in my opinion, that people take what's complex and they make it simple and they reduce it. And evidence of this reductionism is either found in like, you know, the five P's of personal flourishing or, you know, the seven C's of, of eating well or how to change a prayer life using the, you know, the three T's. How does someone take something complex and make it accessible without making it simple? I have tried hard to find the actual source for the line I'm about to give you, and I have not been able to find it yet. Yes. But Albert Einstein is supposed to have said, mm -hmm. simplify as far as possible, but no farther. Mm. And of course, it doesn't matter who said it, but um, it's, it's good wisdom, right? Simplify as far as possible. So it's good to simplify things. Why is it good? It's good because you can communicate it better. Yep. Uh, more people can understand. Uh, more people can then profit from the good idea you're proposing. It also uh, forces you as a thinker to collect and sort out your thoughts in a way that if you leave it in the jargon of the guild is sometimes actually less precise than when you have to think it through for a more general audience. But of course, Einstein's quite right to say you simplify as far as possible, but then as you indicate, Toby, you go across a line and now you're distorting. Now you're actually not telling the truth anymore and oversimplifying or is, is to distort and, and not to make it uh, correct. 
So part of what I've found myself doing is trying to bridge the world of the academy and the world of the interested and fairly intelligent general reader. I don't have a gift for speaking to high school kids. I don't have the gift for speaking to people who have a trade background. I respect people like that, of course, but I'm not great at that. I can preach maybe to audiences like that, but what I found myself doing, and I trust is what God wants me to do, is to speak usually to university-educated people, but who are not necessarily theological or philosophical specialists. Because most of what is aimed even at those educated audiences comes from people who are only a little more educated than they are. You know, they mm-hmm. might have a degree, a degree in theology. They might be a preacher. They might be a part-time professor at, you know, Holy Moses Bible College or something. And <laughs> they, they're, just, they're just not expert. They just don't know what they're talking about. So those of us who have taken the time and money to presumably know what we're talking about should be trying to do more of that. And of course, here again, we run into what our critical theorists would say is a social problem, a sociological problem, namely that there's very little incentive for me as a professor to do that. The incentive from my guild is to talk to my fellow guild members in the language that they prefer according to the questions that they find interesting. That is what's going to get me the academic plaudits. That's what's going to get me the more prestigious chairs. And the writing that I do and the speaking that I do to people like you uh, doesn't help me at all. Uh, I don't get paid. I don't get more famous. I don't uh, become more uh, esteemed. So you've got to decide that it's a good thing to do. Yeah. And I do. So I'm happy to talk to you. But it's, it's interesting that it's actually against my professional interests to be too broad, as they would say, and yep. to be too accessible. So in your work, I guess, as a way not only to help your vocation, but also to get your work out into the world, you've written a number of books. I'm thinking over 10. Is that correct? Yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Um, your topics include small things like egalitarianism or feminism or one's vocation or, you know, someone's calling. And then, but you're also an ethicist. In your books, you tend to tie in public ethics into all of them, which I really appreciate. What motivates you to write? And, what, and why are the things you write about important? Who are you trying to speak to? And um, I guess collectively as a community, um, what are you trying to show that some people may not see? I confess that I'm ambitious to perhaps a foolish degree. I, uh, I, having just said what I said, I, I, I've known that my whole career. It's not like I've only laterally realized that's the way the academy works. It was my privilege to have a a pretty good education. I went to some pretty good places as a student. So I knew the way the first-rate academy worked. And yet, I I insisted on, in a sense, trying to write books and some scholarly articles that genuinely made a contribution to what I felt to be the scholarly conversations around the problem of evil or... The questions of epistemology, the philosophy of knowledge, mm-hmm. or to a Christian understanding of gender. In, in, I would say in each of the books, 
that I've written as well as the history I've written, there is a, I think, significant contribution to the overall, including scholarly conversation about that subject. Mm. But I've also tried to write in such a way that you didn't have to be a scholar to listen to what I had to say and to profit by that. And what's happened, I think, in some cases is that the, the guilds, the various guilds, philosophy, theology, ethics, um, I have not paid the same attention they would because I'm not speaking quite the right language. I'm speaking too general a language. Sure. And particular individuals in the guild have written on the backs of my books very nice things. And individuals have written to me and say, well, I use your book in class, or I really find that helpful. But I'd have to say, Toby, that I, I'm not sure that I went about it strategically the right way, okay. because I think that to really convince people, you've got to be saying something that's a little bit different than what they're saying, but you got to say it in a way that they find very familiar, very reassuring and impressive. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I feel a little sorry for myself that I didn't make the difference I'd like to have made in some of these conversations. Um, at the same time, I'm grateful for the people who have read uh, what I've written, and I keep trying to do that. Um, I've been able somehow to score jobs that didn't require me to be just a historian or just a theologian or yeah. just an ethicist. Um, even as, uh, frankly, at this stage in my career, I realized that because I didn't specialize, I will never be at Prestige U. I've got friends who teach <laughs> at Prestige universities around the world. And they say nice things about my work, but they also say, yep, you're right. Because when we hire, we hire the world's best person in this field that is available. And uh, you do four things and we only process one thing. Yeah, one so, thing. okay, um, then good for me. I've been able to make a living doing what I really like to do, mm. uh, but that's the way the world works. Yeah, from my understanding, the university uh, in its Origins was founded upon, I guess, uh, four legs of a table theology, philosophy, psychology, and history. Is theology currently a dying art, or uh, am I misreading it? Yeah, we could have a chat sometime about why you picked those four, because those don't correspond to the quadrivium and the trivium and psychology is a pretty recent discipline. So we could have to think about that a little bit, but you're not wrong about theology's uh, decline from being the queen of the sciences to something that isn't even taught on many university campuses. Uh, down under, for instance, it's pretty hard to find theology at an Australian university, uh, very hard to find there does show up across the water in New Zealand. So one of New Zealand's best universities, University of Otago, for instance, down in Dunedin has quite a good department that features real theology, real biblical studies, even though I'm pretty sure there's nothing like that in Auckland. In North America, we have the same mixed situation. There are major universities in Canada, as well as minor ones that would have nobody on the faculty who would be doing anything like theology and Christian ethics, but some that would, and not just at divinity schools, they would be in religious studies departments, but they would be doing straightforward Christian thought. In the United States, 
if you take the very most prestigious universities, you have people who are doing theology um, mm -hmm. at Harvard, yep. at Yale, Chicago, uh, Duke, and now at Princeton, um, which didn't used to be the case. Even as recently as 15 years ago, I'd have to say Princeton Seminary, yes, but Princeton University, no. But they now mm -hmm. have one or two people, particularly from philosophical theology, who have infiltrated the religious studies department. My, my friend Eric Gregory, for instance, is an example of that at Princeton. Mm -hmm. But at Stanford, no way. At University of California, Berkeley, no way. Um, you're not going to get anything theological in the door of those universities. Um, so Oxford, Cambridge, St. Andrews, uh, Durham, yes. Mm -hmm. London, still. So it's, it's very strange, actually, Toby. Um, the situation we're in now, where theology continues to enjoy a place at the world's best universities, and some of us publish theology with the world's best university presses. Um, even as for lots of universities, it's like, as Dawkins says, you know, it's like the scientific study of fairies, like it just, it's just beneath contempt. So we're in a weird state, state right now. And, and I would say that the, your question, I've answered just in terms of the university world, more broadly, tricky to say, because um, I think you may be asking, are Christians leading thoughtful, intentional lives? Well, there's two billion of us, and some of us are, and lots of us aren't, and lots yeah. of people in between. Yeah, I think what I'm also trying to press on is the art of thinking theologically. And uh, is that beginning to become marginalized even within the church? that in our, in this growing hyper-individualized society mentioned at the top of the conversation, are we losing our ability to think theologically collectively? I think you're onto something important there. I think that the irony is that the general level of education continues to go up in the West and around the world, right? The, the, what, what, what the state requires as a minimum for education has gone up from sixth grade to eighth grade to 10th grade to, you know, to high school, our economy continues to press us to higher and higher levels of education, even as I think our lower levels of education actually get worse. So now you've got to go to university to get a basic education that you probably could have done a pretty good high school diploma to get a couple uh, generations ago when it comes to reading, writing, and arithmetic, but let's not go there for very long as you want to. Um, at the same time, though, the, the blandishments of life in the West in particular, all the fun things there are to do on Sunday besides going to church, all the interesting and important things to do during the week besides going to church, and the sheer demand that many of us feel from our 24-7 workplaces and our long commutes means that we're spending actually very little time in Christian community, mm. and we're spending really very little time on Christian education. Yeah. So we might have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. We might have lots of technical training. We might be actually fairly well educated. But a generation ago, probably more people in church knew their Bibles better than we do today. Yeah. More people had memorized more scripture. That seems like a medieval art now. More people could have Sunday afternoon conversations about what the pastor said in church 
that would last more than five minutes and amounted to more than whether they liked his joke or not. Like we could actually talk about that. And people did that. Again, this isn't the 19th century. This is the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, so I think something really important has shifted to push out significant Christian thinking and conversation from our lives. Yeah, because yeah. I must admit that uh, even my life in seminary, still in seminary, that I don't really recall many of the classes that I took. What I do recall, which probably cultivated my appreciation for single malt and red wine, was the conversations after and late into the evening around the things that were thrown across our home plate. That it was in those conversations that uh, positions were challenged. Uh, the way, not only what we thought, but the way in which we thought, which you touch on quite eloquently in Need to Know, is that we've, we've almost lost this process in understanding how we know, not necessarily what we know. Could you speak into that for a little bit? Like, why is it the case? Why is, I guess we could call it the history of epistemology and why it's slowly been marginalized. Is it because we've become more individualistic or is it more than that? I think we've become suspicious. I think we're afraid of being deluded and we have good reason to be afraid, you know, yeah. just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. They are out to get you. I mean, Apple is out to sell you something. So is Amazon, right? So, so is the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in the United States and every other political party. These are huge organizations, very well funded and staffed by some of the smartest people our universities can graduate. They're all coming to get you and get you mm -hmm. on their side and to get your dollar and to get you in line. So no wonder you're looking at everyone who shows up on your real or virtual doorstep with suspicion. That's the postmodern mood. And, and we do need to be suspicious. But the that's I think I think that helps explain why some people are so popular who aren't very bright but they convey authority and they convey a kind of trustworthiness. And so whether they're Christian preachers or they're politicians or they're pop stars or they're bloggers or they're yep. podcasters, here, come here and you'll find the truth. Come here and you'll find pretty much what you think just expressed better. And that's what, that's what really, of course, ignites the likes and shares is when you say what people already think, you just say it in a way that they can't themselves. Yeah. But you're really improving the situation by merely amplifying what people already think. And the challenge for each of us is to not settle for what we currently think as yeah. if we've figured it out yeah. and to say, well, Probably I'm not right about everything. So, but, but what am I doing about that? What, what am I doing to remedy my deficits? Well, it's such a confusing and conflictual world. Who can blame me for wanting instead to just do the things that are going to make me feel better um, and to calm things down? But the problem is you can't grow that way. You, you just become more and more yourself. Um, change gears. Do you think there's any, that there is such a thing as Christian ethics? And mm -hmm. could you differentiate uh, for our listeners in a simple way, but not too simple, 
how uh, we differentiate between common ethics and Christian ethics. From a Christian point of view, every human being and all of us as human beings are created by God and we're created to resemble God, what the Bible says, in the image of God. We're, we're, we're created to be like God toward the world in particular. Mm. As God creates the world in the first 25 verses or so of the book of Genesis at the front end of the Bible, God then creates a creature to garden the world to be caretaker of the world, to be Lord of the world, not in an oppressive way, but in the way that the Lord actually looks after us. So yeah. in a kind and generous and creative and self-giving way, we're supposed to be Lords of the world the way the Lord is the Lord of us. So that really lovely and interesting and challenging picture of what it means to be a human being is true for everybody, whether you're a Christian mm -hmm. or not. That's what it means to be a human from a Christian point of view is to mm -hmm. make the world flourish, is to pursue shalom, uh, this flourishing. So there's a lot about ethics in our society that's pretty much an overlap with Christian ethics per se. Yep. But then you say, well, that's not too surprising. I mean, Western culture has been deeply influenced by the Christian religion for, you know, a thousand plus years. True, but even when I visit other places, I mean, there's overlap with Chinese ethics. There's overlap with Indian ethics uh, because we're human and because uh, there are some things that seem obviously right to us wherever we are, I think by the gift of God. Still, what makes Christian ethics distinctive is indeed right in the name. It's the focus on Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. that when we don't know what to do, which is often, we go to Jesus. We go to his example in scripture. We go to his teachings in the Bible. But we also, as I suggested at the, at the top of our program, that, that we, we, we check in with him mm -hmm. through the wisdom of other Christians, through the wisdom of the church, through the wisdom of scripture. We try to coordinate these and listen to the Holy Spirit in our minds and do the best we can to listen and steer by what Jesus wants us to do. And often that will be what any decent person would do, but sometimes it won't be. Sometimes it will require self-sacrifice that another person might not. And like, for instance, one of the big differences is the really large and long story of Christian altruism, of the vast numbers of dollars and personnel that Christians have poured into other countries mm -hmm. uh, on behalf of the Christian religion, doing relief and development, doing uh, education, doing hospitals that have no obvious ulterior motive except care for people who cannot possibly be expected to pay you back. And this isn't just kind of the Peace Corps edge of the American Imperium. You know, it's, 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 mm. it's, it's, it seems to be genuinely concerned for others. Uh, and, and I think people like Dawkins have, have no idea how to explain that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that from a Christian point of view, we do it because God wants us to do it. We're supposed to love our neighbors and we trust him to fund such good initiatives. We don't expect to get anything out of it except to please God and to love our neighbors. But that's a really interesting record yeah. that, that is worth looking at. Because, you know, I'll tell you, without being too confrontational, you don't see the Hindu hospitals around the world. No. You, don't, you don't see the Buddhist schools around the world. You don't even see the, the Muslim 
investment in relief and development other places. It's really only this religion that has expended so many of its resources, including men and women, boys and girls around the world, quite sacrificially, to bless their neighbors. I think that's worth a good look. So we're coming towards the end of our conversation, but wanted to lift up this since we spoke about uh, the acquisition and framing of knowledge. How has it, or sorry, how should it frame our social imagination? And and as we move, act and be in the world publicly, in what ways do you see us doing that well, us being followers of Jesus? But in what ways uh, do we have our relative blind spot? Jesus was pretty popular in his own day. He was sufficiently unpopular, of course, to get on the wrong side of the authorities, and they eventually killed him. But he had a pretty big following, which is one of the reasons why the authorities weren't very happy with him. So there's, there's lots about Jesus' teaching and his example that lots of us can relate to, whether we're Christians or not. Lots of us can admire whether we're Christians or not. What makes somebody distinctly Christian, of course, is saying Jesus is number one for me. And I try to organize my whole life around what I think he wants. I try to organize my romance and my marriage that way. I try to organize my family life that way. I try to organize my business and professional life that way. I try to organize my spending and my saving and my investing that way. So it's a pretty radical sellout to mm. Jesus. That's what makes somebody truly a Christian rather than somebody who's impressed in some way by Christian ethics that they pick or choose to add to their self-chosen lifestyle. Mm. And, and that's the radical call, is, is God has rescued us from certain death to give us new life, and it is only appropriate then that we give our lives back. And in that way, we find them, because mm. the hope is that we're actually training for the world to come. Mm. We, have a, we have a good life here, but we have a better life awaiting us for which we are getting rehabilitated and uh, we are be becoming um, the kinds of people who in the world to come, in Earth 2.0, we won't just screw it up and start the whole miserable process again. We'll be the kinds of people who can move into that new world and really make the best of it. And that to me is a very exciting hope, right? It's not a boring idea of going to heaven and sitting in clouds and playing harps at each other. It's, okay. it's going forward to a new and improved situation on this planet yep. in a way where finally we can do things the way we should. Mm. So what would you say then a blind spot or two that we uh, collectively need to work on? With our increased sensitivity to questions of race nowadays, particularly in the United States, but elsewhere, we look back just a hundred years and even less and go, how could they possibly have thought that, right? How could they be so blind to the obvious evils of segregation, of Jim Crow, of outright slavery as you go back? How could they have been so blind? Uh, I think a hundred years from now or less, a future generation is gonna say the same thing about abortion. Mm. I think they're gonna say, how could you not see that? How could you be so committed to the rights of adult humans that you were willing to sacrifice the rights of unborn humans? Uh, 
yeah. um, I, I, I really am afraid that that's going to be our legacy. I don't think we see that any more clearly than my ancestors did 150 years ago as Virginia planters holding slaves and going to church on Sunday. Yeah. So yeah, that, I may be wrong about that particular instance, but we, we have them. That to me is one obvious place to look. Yep. And to not finish on a glum note, but a creative note, um, what are you currently writing about? When Professor Stackhouse has time set aside for himself, both professionally and personally, what are you curating or cultivating uh, intelligent brain of yours? Well, I've got my manuscript into New York uh, with the publisher for a new little book that tries to introduce the world to evangelicalism. Yep. It's part of the very short introduction series produced by Oxford University Press. So that should be out in six or seven months. And I'm waiting for my editor to give me back my manuscript to revise that. Right. Trying to lift it out of the American frame to a global frame and try to lift it out of Trumpian politics to you know several hundred years of heritage and see what we can learn from that. And then the next book, um, maybe uh, some actual theology, Toby, where I actually do try to look at the story from creation of uh, this world to the renewal of the next and uh, help us think about it in some fresh ways. But my deadline isn't for two or three years, so I've got time to come up with good ideas between now and then. Will it be systematics or um, a Stackhouse uh, perspective? Yeah, it'll be the latter. Um, to write a full-blown systematic theology requires you to write a textbook where you have to talk about all these things, whether you have anything interesting to say or not. I'm not that interesting. I don't have something interesting to say about every darn thing. But I've got about 10 or 12 things I want to say, and they do happen to go across the, the waterfront. So it will be a single book of linked chapters, but I'm just going to touch down to say something if I think it's worth the reader paying attention to me. We'll see if I can pull that off. Wonderful. Professor Stackhouse, thank you for your time. And I'm looking forward to sharing that single malt in person very soon. Absolutely. Sounds good to me, Toby. Thanks.